All right, if you'll come back to your seats. And if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 5. If not, you can follow along on the screen or however you prefer to do so. So we are going through the book of Ephesians, and this morning we come to a, a kind of a difficult topic. But uh, I want you to know, depending on your experience with this topic, it may be one you're more or less comfortable with or uncomfortable with. But as we go through a book of the Bible, you can rest assured that even though sometimes it is appropriate to tackle topics, that we want people coming from the outside as we look at this topic this morning to know that this is a part of our continuing series, and it's not like a soapbox. You know, when it comes, we're going to talk about sexual immorality. And so for many people who are on the outside of the church, they think, oh, that's just something the church wants to, you know, one note, rail on that. But hopefully today... You'll know that's not the case, but we are a church that believes all of God's word is God's word, that all of God's word is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it's good for us because it's the truth of Jesus that will set us free, and we want to submit to that together. So as we read Ephesians 5, 3 through, 3 through 21, that is, let us pray that the Spirit will open our eyes to see the glory of Christ. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how to walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to, the, melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news that we've heard from all the book of Ephesians up to this point. And we thank you now by your spirit leading us into some really nitty-gritty practical application. But we pray, God, that you would help us to listen, to receive, and to act with great humility, with great gentleness, and patience, and perseverance, and how we hear and speak and receive such things. And we pray that you help us to do all these things, not to boost our own uh, sense of personal pride, but to bring glory to Christ. We pray, God, you protect our ears today from any untrue thing I might speak, and what is true, according to your word, would pierce our hearts, would convict us, would comfort us, for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus, in whose name we pray, 
Amen. Well, m most of you people have heard the phrase, an elephant in the room. So it's as if you're, you're going through problem, conflict, maybe in your household, maybe in relationships, but you never talk about this big issue that really is so involved with everything in your life. And as a church that says that we, values not, we value not merely coming to a Sunday service and sort of checking off the list that we did the Jesus thing, but as a church that, fought, that really, really at the heart of everything we do is about following Jesus and the stuff of everyday life, then we have to talk about the issue of sex. I mean, this is a part of life. We all just probably got uncomfortable, or I did, saying the word, right? My daughter's in here, so I'm sure she's uncomfortable hearing that. Pastor's kids, right? I'll stop embarrassing her. I just want us to feel this, right? This is, this is an elephant in the room of our lives. It's things that we yell about outside of the church. It's things that we listen to on the radio, songs about. If you're honest, we watch TV shows that include it. But in the life of the church, so often we don't talk about it. And what this passage is saying is that whatever is not brought into the light grows in the dark. And if we want to be a church that is fashioned around this grand vision of the book of Ephesians that God gives us, that we would be a display of the manifold wisdom of God in the world and even to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, then we have got to pursue unity and maturity when it comes to the issue of sexual immorality. This will not be solved this morning. But we at least need to be the people that lean into this conversation. Because often the church has not wanted to talk about it. Or when we talk about it, all we talk about it of is in terms of negativity. We're known more for what saying what is not to happen than actually the what behind God's vision for issues of sexuality and sex. And yet here it is in God's word, and not just in this place, but a lot of places. It was there in Ephesus for sure. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And it's in our world. So think out loud with me a little bit. Where do you see this, this issue right now being one that really needs to be talked about? Or maybe how have you experienced times where it was not talked about? That's good. And whether you share or not, just th bring these things to your mind right now. This is an, a big issue. You know, and uh, have a friend who's a principal here in Cleveland, so just in Cleveland, know that in elementary schools, you know, children are looking at pornography on their phones, watching videos. Uh, in other schools, improper pictures are being texted around of actual students. In high school, we've all been there. We know it can become an anything goes type situation. Into college, and even as Jonathan said, oftentimes we think marriage will solve this, will fix it, and then we're in for a rude awakening that the temptations, the frustrations, don't just go away. We need to see that, that this is not just a modern problem or a modern issue. Ephesus was a port city that was known for its flagrant and celebrated sexual immorality. The, the goddess Diana was worshipped there. She was a multi-breasted goddess. We need to feel any more uncomfortable. And it was, if you wanted to live life to the fullest and to the freest, 
in that culture, it meant that you indulged all of your sexual inclinations and your sexual appetites to the fullest. That's what it meant to be fully human in that culture. And so we're not reading here some ancient text that is divorced from the real struggles that we have today. In the worship of this goddess, things that we would not even name, as Paul says in this text, took place. But what we're being called to as the people of God and this unity and maturity that we're called to live into Christ is to submit our sexuality to the supremacy of Jesus and to believe that that is good news, that Jesus is not just true news, we often say, but he is good news. And so how do we engage this issue? We're going to engage it through this text the best we can in the, the limited time we have, but we're also going to put this framework that we often do with how we really should think through any ethical issue or any biblical issue is through the story of God. What did God have to say about this in creation? What was his pattern that he laid out? But then how did that become broken in the fall? How did what was God's order and pattern become disordered and shattered and fractured? How does Jesus come to bring redemption to that which is broken? And then what does it look like then to live into the restoration that God is calling us to? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So the first thing we need to see in this text is that sexuality and sex is beautiful. It's sacred. It's a gift from God. So verse 3, sexual morality is, is implying here or assuming that there was a sexual morality. That there was a created order by God. Impurity is assuming that there was a purity. There was a pure use of this. And covetousness points us back to the law of God, the, the tenth commandment of the ten commands. Do not covet, but if you go back and read it explicitly, it's talking about don't covet someone else's spouse. Don't covet a person that is yours that you make into an object to possess instead of a person to love in the image of God. It was a sacred thing, and that's why verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And why are they out of place? Because joking about such things of sexuality and sex, making light of these things, is making light of a beautiful and glorious gift that God gave the world to glorify his name. We are instead to, to view these issues with thanksgiving, with a sacred thanksgiving. So a couple of, of, of realities that we pull from this. And we pull from the larger story of God's word as we go back to Genesis 1. And we see that God creates male and female in his image. Is that our sexuality, our engendered sexuality is a part of who we are. And it is good. It is good. We are created as embodied persons according to the pattern of God and the story of his word. As some people have said, and we may not always think about it this way, it's not just that we have a body, we are a body. Oftentimes in the history of Christianity, we've made this divorce between the soul and the body. But God created people, embodied people, and when Jesus returns, he says he is going to renew our bodies and we will enjoy an eternal relationship with God and one another as embodied persons. So we need to see that it is good. Our engendered, bodied selves are good. This is hard in our world. But this was God's pattern. And also, in the beginning, not only was our sexuality apart from the act of sex good, but the act of sex was good. Not something necessary, if you're single, or, or, or inhibited in other ways. 
that makes you less than human if you can't engage in such acts. But inside the covenant of marriage, male and female were called to multiply and fill the earth. But also in their sexual activity to depict the intimacy of God's love for his people. And even as Jesus, we'll get to this in a minute, was single his whole life and yet fully human, God's pattern lays out the beauty of both sexuality and sex. Now this is again as uncomfortable to talk about and if you really knew it's very uncomfortable for me to talk about. When I was growing up, this was not talked about in my circle. And once, bless their hearts, I remember my parents trying to talk to me about it and I shut it down fast and listen to this response. I don't, I've already learned about this at school. You know who I learned about it from? A, a good old boy named Boosie. <laughs> the guy that's like 14 in the fifth grade. And between Bo Boosie and bus rides to school, because you can learn a lot about this subject on the bus too. They have pictures for you and uh, stories being passed around and sometimes even activities. That's, that's where I learned about it. And I didn't especially want anybody that was close to me that I'd have to look in the eye every day talking to me about it. And at church, again, people tried to talk about it, but largely what I heard through my ears is this was a dirty thing. This was just a bad thing. It was a shameful thing, or it was something to just to giggle about in the back row of youth group. But I didn't know it was a beautiful gift from God. It's kind of like living in Cleveland, and you know, you know about the beauty of the Okoe, but all you hear about is the warnings that you might drown. And so what is a beautiful thing becomes just a fearful thing. Watch out. That is just going to destroy you. But the way the human heart works is what is often cast in that thing becomes a, a secret, hidden lure. So the church, as we think about the beauty of sexuality and sex, I think we need to repent the way we've talked about it only in terms of the dirtiness and not in terms of the beauty. Where we've made it just a private discussion. I don't mean a private discussion between one another, but like it's just me. I don't talk about that. I don't go there because we need to bring this into the light because it is an area of light when we see it in view of God's pattern. We need to resolve to speak about sexuality and sex not only as something that is a, a fire that can burn, but is a fire that can warm. We need to celebrate and keep it sacred. And we need to speak of sexuality in ways that are beautiful beyond a Barbie and Ken cookie cutter fashion. And we know this is not how the story ends with the beautiful pattern. But as our text here clearly is dealing with is that sexuality and sex is broken. The pattern was broken. Verses 3 and 4 again. Sexual immorality is a part of the world. Calling this out in Ephesus which is very countercultural. In, the area, in, in our lives, we, we don't take it seriously often. Or we just keep it hidden. Or we joke about it. I mean, most humor, right? 
If you listen to any comedy, is going to use sex as something to make us all laugh. And we laugh. And as we laugh at it, guess what happens in our hearts and even our brains? We normalize it. If you haven't caught on to how the world is pressing in on you, it wants you to laugh at something so that you begin to think, well, that's not a big deal. And you laugh at it, you think it's not a big deal, and then before long, you find yourself affirming it. It's an ancient trick. But it's serious. Because, and these are not my words, these are not the words of any tradition, but verse 5 says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, is this saying anyone who sins in any, of these, in any type of sexual immorality is not a believer, is not a true Christian, is not a part of the kingdom of God? Well, I hope not, or we're all, we're all done for, right? Because Jesus said, even if you looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. What it is saying, though, is that those who embrace a lifestyle, those who identify themselves with this sexual immorality, are those who reveal that they are not worshiping God, but they are worshiping an idol. Even if that idol they call God still. Even if that idol they call Jesus still. But they've created a God in their own image. They've created a Jesus in their own form. And they reveal because they've chosen to identify with the lordship of the, their own heart over the lordship of Christ that they are not in the kingdom of God. So this couldn't be more important. And so Paul tells the church in Ephesus through the Spirit, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We live in a world where many people, many people who even claim the name of Christ, are going to tell you if you're not already hearing, that's not a big deal. That's just rooted in repressive, patriarchal, bigoted beliefs. And the same words that the enemy whispered in the garden are whispered to us today. Did God really say that? Let's find a hermeneutic. Let's find a way of interpreting scripture that can lead us to, ironically, affirming everything the culture says is good. But it's fatal. So verse 7 says, therefore we do not become partners with them. It doesn't mean that we do not associate with people. I mean, we're Matthew's Table Church, right? We're those, we, get, we want people who have yet to come to know Jesus in every way to pull up a chair to the table so that we can be friends and love them. But although we associate, we do not participate. We see here that we live in a broken world, and we've got to own that. As people who believe in the reality of the fall and its effects, not only uh, in the core of all that we are in our activity, but all that we are to the level of our hearts and our desires, then it should not surprise us that we are very confused about issues of sexuality from birth. If anyone ever says, well, how? I, well, hey, I've, I've wrestled with this since I was born. We shouldn't sit back and be surprised, right? The way we understand how sin works is that makes sense. Right? My parents didn't have to teach me how to sin. I was ready to be selfish. 
I was ready to act on my impulses and to kick and scream until they gave me what I did or took me to the woodshed. Confusion of our sexuality and gender, confusion of how sexual activity is to take place, it's in our very DNA because we are fallen people in a fallen world with fallen instincts and with fallen impulses. And what we have to realize is that denying those impulses is what helps us to find who we really are. Identifying with our sin is not finding who we really are. Not only is there that disorder at the level of sexuality and gender, but at sex itself. So many people struggle with pornography. The statistics would say probably most of the men in here that do this morning. I've struggled with it in my life before. I'm not going to pretend that I hadn't. It's a disorder. Isolated, selfish acts that plague us all. If we don't admit this, if we don't lament this, then we can't prepare ourselves for the healing that God wants to do in our lives. So many times in my history as a pastor, I've sat in a counseling office with men who are confessing this, and they're so broken, and they're so alone, and they're going to go sit in a pew with about a hundred other ones that are all suffering with it, but none of them are going to tell each other. There's not only that issue, but there's fornication, there's adultery, there's homosexuality, there's polyamory, there's bestiality. There's all these things that our, our world in some way manifest. This isn't new. Just go read Leviticus. You can hang in there. There's a reason why all those laws were given. It's because all those things were happening. There's nothing new. The only norm in our society now when it comes to sexual activity is consent. Right? If you consent to it, then go for it. We're back in Ephesus again. And because for me in my life growing up, because this wasn't something that was talked about out in the open and regularly, it was something that grew in the dark. I didn't know what to do with it. I felt weird and strange. And I hid it. I would turn the TV on. Those who aren't used to this and or younger might not get it, the lines where you could see HBO, right? You, parents won't get HBO, but you could turn it to the certain channel, and you'd, I think I made out a shape. It's embarrassing for me to share this. That's where I was. And I just thank God there was no internet when I was a middle school and high school boy. But there is now. As I was younger, I was awkward around boys, confused and when I was really young. And then as I got older, awkward with girls. And it was probably just my n being naive about such things that kept that awkwardness from becoming something much darker. And I lived in the dark with much guilt over things that were done and shame. Like I'm, I just feel like I'm fundamentally broken. What is wrong with me? just afraid one day I'm going to be found out. I'm supposed to be the good Christian. 
month to all my friends, what if one day they find out I really wrestle with this so much? We've got to be honest. We've got to be honest about the brokenness in ourselves and in our world. And we can't choose certain sexual disorders as those that are worse than others. The church needs to repent of this. We've often been very outspoken of those things that we think are out there, and we've not discussed the things that are right under our own noses. We've made the church an unsafe place for people who are bringing a lot of brokenness when it comes to sexuality and sex. We've particularly done this very poorly to the gay community. We, we just have. We've been very clear on maybe where we stand, but we've not been very clear <laughs> that we don't view our sexual sins as any worse than theirs or ours. We've not talked about this issue holistically in terms of its brokenness of not only sins that we've committed, but sins that have been committed against us. Much sexual abuse has taken place even in a church where leaders in the church don't want to deal with it because it's just too messy. And yet victims are wounded, confused, and often walk away from the faith altogether. And women, the statistics show you struggle with some form of pornography as much as the men do. Sometimes maybe that's an emotional form of pornography where you read a book, watch a TV show, and you just dream of a man like that instead of that bum in there eating chips on the recliner. <laughs> See, I can't even talk about it without joking. It's, we're, we're all in this thing. The church needs to resolve that we are going to take seriously this brokenness from a perspective of grace and truth to listen carefully, to believe humbly these strong statements that, that God's word says, but to do this from a posture of a, of a listener, of a learner, of a lover of God and of people, to count the cost of doing so. Because if we are a church that is supremely sympathetic and loving to, to all types of brokenness, but at the same time believes what God's word says about those who identify with that brokenness fully as their identity instead of leaning into Christ, then we're going to find ourselves kind of in the middle, taking shots from all sides. But we believe this is where we find Jesus. And that's what we've set out to do is to follow him, even if that means standing alone. For those of you who, who are younger, I know this is going to be harder. The pressure is on you in ways that was never even on me. I can't believe I'm already at that age, but I'm at that age now where I can say that to you who are in here in high school and in college. The pressure is on you to accept certain things, to affirm certain things, or to be labeled just as an ignorant bigot who is holding back the progress of history. But I want to urge you that you're not alone because as verse 8 says and points us here is that we have one who defines us more deeply we have one who not only brings us into the light, but through his life makes us light. Notice, for you were at once dark, for you, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is 
good and true and right. This is amazing. Why should we not live into the sexual morality that our, our impulses, our desires, and our culture is calling us? Because we have been made light. Imagine him speaking to this group of Ephesians whose lives were probably very immersed in a sexually immoral culture and he's looking at them who once lived in such darkness and he has said, Jesus now has made you light. And that as you live into that light, the fruit that grows from the root of Christ will bring forth more light into this world. Jesus comes to bring redemption to our sexuality, and he comes to bring redemption to our sexual activity. Jesus incarnates himself into this world in, this, in the sexuality of the gender of a man. He didn't have to do that, but he did. Now, this wasn't a statement of male supremacy or an elevation of the male gender, but it was a statement on the importance of the body as essential to humanity. It was a reaffirmation of what God did in the beginning when he said he created us in bodies and he said it was very good. The incarnation of Christ teaches us that. That Jesus was never married. And yet he was the utmost human. Jesus came to not abolish the law but to fulfill the law. And he lived fully before God and man according to God's design. And some people would have you say, well, Jesus really didn't have anything to say about issues of, of gender, sexuality, and how we identify ourselves as such. But if you go to Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, as, as clear and plain as the nose is on your face, Jesus quotes from Genesis. He quotes from the pattern of God that God created male and female in his image. But in Hebrews 2, it says this, and this is amazing, that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and yet was without sin. And you know what every way means? It means every way. This is scandalous grace, isn't it? All of the sexual temptations that we face are not foreign to Jesus. He stepped into that for us. Those inclinations that tempt you, those urges that pull you, and you think no one could identify with me. Well, if no one else can, Jesus can. He knows what it's like to stand under the heat of that pressure. But the good news is, is that where we fall, he fulfilled. The good news that we've read this morning is that although he's already went, he went to the cross to take upon himself not only the guilt of the acts of our sins, but the very disorder of the curse of the fall upon himself, down to the depths of our nature, to the extent of our nurture, and that by his stripes we are healed. This is good news. And although Jesus never engaged in sexual activity, he also redeemed it. Because as we'll see later in Ephesians 5, that from the very beginning, marriage was to be a picture of Christ and the church. And that all throughout the Old Testament, God's relationship to his people was portrayed as the love of a husband for a bride. And sexual activity was a picture of that intimacy that God had with his people. Just read the Old Testament. It will make you blush. 
The way that God talks about how he loves his people. So much so that in most of the history of the church, the Old Testament book of the Song of Solomon was not merely read as a poetic story of the romance of a king for his bride, but of the romantic love of God for his people. An intense, passionate, pursuing love. And this is why sexual immorality is such an offense to God. It's why it's not even to be named among us. It's because it turns this beautiful gift that was given for the glory of God through the redemption of Christ into something that is a selfish act that we redefine according to our own lordship instead of a reflection of His covenant, faithful, intimate love. There's some pretty shameful things in this world, and if we're honest some pretty shameful things that have happened and maybe are happening even in this room today or among those represented. Whatever you have hidden in the dark, God knows it. But the good news is he's not sitting there waiting to strike you. The good news is, is that he struck his son in your place. That when Jesus went to the cross, he took upon him every mouse click you make in the dark. He took upon himself every fantasy you had for another person's husband. He took upon himself every sinful desire and every sinful deed. And he bore it all in your place. Praise him. He paid it in full. You cannot out what he accomplished at the cross. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. However dirty you feel, the work of Christ washes you clean. And he came for even me. Siri says amen. You know, I experienced a lot of guilt in my life over the years of darkness. But what good news to know that this is not a general truth, but a truth for us. A truth for me. A lot of shame those years thinking, what's wrong with me? A lot of shame. But now to know that Jesus bore that shame and now has clothed me with his righteousness. That when God sees me and looks upon me as my father, and when he sees you and looks upon you as his father, he doesn't see you defined by those sins. He sees you defined by his son. For some of you, it's not sins you've committed, but sins in this area that have been done to you. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at you as a weak, defenseless child or adult even more, anymore. He looks at you as someone whom he loves deeply and will walk with you. And so that's how our text ends this morning. Just hit the highlights here. As we see through Jesus' sex and sexuality, 
restored. You may not read through all these verses, but just to summarize, we're called to live into this restoration. Verse 10, that says it means we're going to have to have discernment. Discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Discernment means you can tell the difference between what is good and what is evil. But that means you're going to have to set your life up accordingly. You can't listen or laugh or live with your life surrounded by welcoming sexual immorality. Sang about, watched, and think that's not going to have any effect on me. I mean, that's just the reality. When I was a kid, you know what I said? I don't listen to the words. I just like the music. And then I had every word of the song memorized. <laughs> that was my logic. Be careful. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I'm not here to give you a list of what to do or not to do, not into that kind of legalism. But I can ask you, according to God's word, when you make these decisions in your life, just pause and say, Holy Spirit, how would you lead me to honor Christ in this decision right now? To live into this resurrection means resistance and exposure, even though it's hard to talk about. Verses 11 and 12 don't partake in these, but instead expose them. Do this with grace and truth, but we have to be willing to speak what is true to God's word. And we need to believe that the only hope for ourselves and our world is bringing the darkness into the light. Verses 13 and 14. As Paul there quotes Isaiah, calling us into the light of Christ. Verses 15 through 21, many people separate these things, but I think in view of the context, there's a, there's a deep connection here that living into this restoration means wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise. Again, be discerning, be wise. What is wisdom? Wisdom is you being able to apply truth in everyday life. Wisdom means you don't have a list that says, here's, what, here's what's right and here's what's wrong, and I'm going to do this to compare myself to other people so that I feel more righteous. Now, wisdom says, in this world that we live in, we don't know what's going to come out tomorrow or what new ways our hearts are going to think of to sin. But we can navigate that according to the word of God and the spirit of God. Verse 16, we know God's will through God's word. Well, it's verse 17, verse 16, we redeem the time. In verse 18, verse 17, that is, we live filled with God's spirit and not alcohol. Now, I do, I do have to say this, so this might be one of those things you can discard. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. So, just to make sure we all know, that means that this was wine you could get drunk on. And this is the same Greek word that Jesus used in John 2. So I just want to say that. This wasn't Welch's grape juice. Jesus didn't turn water into grape juice. So I want to say that. But we do need to see that a lot of sexual immorality happens around alcohol. If you don't know that, then just go to pick a local party. This is, this is serious, right? When you inhibit your senses and your will, then you will do things that you might not have otherwise did with a clear mind. And we're called instead to fill ourselves and make ourselves be under the influence of another substance to let ourselves live under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. 
as we submit to his influence. We never let our minds or bodies get into a place or a situation to where we cannot follow the Spirit. And then the last one here. And I think this is the, the most beautiful, maybe, of all. Is we sing to each other. Verses 19 through 21. We address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What is he saying? If we're going to live this spirit-filled life in the face of a sexually immoral culture, then we have got to be the people who are marked by a joyful community. We've got to be the people who have more joy than anybody else. Because the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is not saying, I want to suppress the fullness of the satisfaction that you can have in this world. So life on earth is just supposed to be miserable for you while all the, the people who deny me have all the fun. And then, but one day, guess what? You get to go to heaven. So many of us believe, and this is a false gospel, that Jesus can save us, but he can't satisfy us. But the gospel is, it's the same Jesus that saves, it's the Jesus that satisfies. But we can't believe that and we can't go there by ourselves. We've got to have each other speaking the gospel into our lives. As we share the brokenness and we journey in the brokenness, is that we speak to each other, but we sing to each other. Now you might think that's weird, but this is at least one place that we come to do that. Singing has at least three audiences, but two especially. We sing to God, but we sing to each other. We want to hear each other's voices. We don't need the sound system cooperating with that. They didn't have a sound system in Ephesus. They were all right. But we do, what we do need is a group of people submitted to the lordship of Jesus. A group of people who are honest with one another about the battles and the brokenness. People who don't just look at each other and say, hey, just pray that away. You know, just, we're just going to pray our sexual immorality away, you know, and you'll be all better. No. People who are going to journey together. For God's glory and our eternal joy, this is why we're called to submit our sexuality to the good sovereignty of Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to be discerning in how we speak of this and apply this in our world today that is very fractured over this subject. But we pray above all that you would be glorified. As we come to your table now, God, where there is any guilt, shame, or fear surrounding this issue, that we would see the bread and the cup. We would see that you have paid it all. You've covered our shame. You've brought us into the light. You've given us the spirit now to speak the gospel into one another's lives. In Jesus' name, amen.